good morning, everyone. Okay. Make sure. Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Dave, and I'll be unpacking uh, God's Word for us this morning. You might not be able to see me on the screen, but uh, I hope you can hear me. Uh, let me pray um, as we come again to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy because you are holy and perfect in every way. Although you have not revealed every detail about your plans for this world, we know that you have plainly revealed some things. As we explore what you have revealed for us today in the book of Habakkuk, we pray that our proud and distracted hearts will be still before you and that we will be open to being renewed by your spirit through your word, to be people who live by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, Robert or Mark, if you could spotlight me at some point, that would be good. Okay, God does work. Uh, God works in mysterious ways. We've heard that expression before and we've probably used it. It's a cliche, I know, and we've probably said it at times. It actually comes from a song written by William Cowper, one of England's most famous poets and one of the founders of the English Romantic movement. His personal life, however, was full of intense anguish and he suffered depression for many years of his life. His mother died when he was five years old and as a timid, sensitive child, he was bullied ruthlessly by an older boy. At one point, he became so despondent that he attempted suicide. But under the influence of uh, John Newton, who, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, um, uh, he went on to write these words in a well-known hymn. You might not be able to see it very clearly there. Let me read it for you. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Great words. And it's probably a feeling that Habakkuk shared. The book in the Bible bearing his name is written like a personal prayer journal. And Habakkuk marvels at God in one sentence and he wrestles with God in another. The word prophecy or oracle in, in verse 1 actually means burden. And as we saw last week, uh, it reflects the weight of what Habakkuk was dealing with as he sought clarity in the chaos and confusion of life in a violent world. And like Habakkuk, we, at all, all, uh, we all at times ask, how do we make sense of God when he's working in, in such mysterious ways? For Habakkuk was living in a time in Israel's history when everything was going downhill. The political kingdom had split in two and the northern part had been destroyed and the remaining two tribes in the south were tearing themselves apart. Violence, injustice, strife and conflict abounded as, as the law was paralysed and justice perverted as we learned about in chapter 1 last week. Habakkuk cried out to God and asked why God wasn't doing anything. He accused God of not listening to his pleas. But despite what Habakkuk felt, God was listening. And God replied. But his reply didn't bring much comfort. As God said, he was raising up the Babylonians to bring judgment. A ruthless and impetuous people, he described them. 
So Habakkuk cries out again with a prayer, twice as long this time, but carrying a tone of disbelief of what he had just heard. And his prayer begins by affirming what he does not. Uh, first of all, his prayer begins by affirming what he does know about God. Uh, and so let's have a look at some of the clues for what he does know about God at the beginning of his prayer in verse 12 and 13. Let's have a look there. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. One of the things we notice in, in the way he addresses God is using the word Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D. And the use of the name Lord in capital letters in our translations represents the, the covenant God of Israel or, or Yahweh. As it is in the Hebrew. The first use is back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, but it's not until Exodus chapter 3, 14, that God reveals himself as Yahweh when he tells Moses, I am who I am. And by addressing God as Lord here, it shows that Habakkuk remembers God as a covenant keeping God, a God who has made promises to Abraham and he intends to keep them. So that even in his complaint, Habakkuk is still trusting in a God who keeps his promises to his people. And Habakkuk knows that he is one of God's people, which is probably why he uses the very personal expression of my God, my Holy One, my Rock, in verse 12. As he carries the burden of wrestling with God in prayer, Habakkuk is on a spiritual journey. And he moves from just crying out to God to get something off his chest in the first prayer in chapter 1 that we looked at last week to this expression of warm affection in the second, even in the midst of his confusion. And there last week I said it's okay to cry out to God in our confusion and pain. My God, my God. But we also must move from a place of anguish to a place of deeper awareness of who the God is that we are crying out to. Now sadly I hear people who don't profess to believe in God crying out this all the time. Oh my God! Oh my God! People are saying. Who are they crying out to? Like the Babylonians whose strength was their God in verse 11, if people refuse to acknowledge the reality of the one true creator God, then all they have to depend on is their own strengths, their own intellect, their own fail, finite ability. As God is about to reveal in his answer to Habakkuk's second prayer, the Babylonian strength is no match for the holy, everlasting God who will never die. Habakkuk also describes God as a holy God. For he knows that God is set apart as different to him. That is what holiness essentially means. Set apart or, or different. Mysterious, you could say. That's how God works in mysterious ways. Ways that we don't expect. He's different. But holiness is not an attribute of God as it, as it is the very essence of his being. 
perfect in every way, completely pure. Unlike us, in all our frailty and imperfection, God can be relied on. And hence the image of, of the rock that Habakkuk uses in verse 12. So Habakkuk begins his prayer by laying down some of the foundations for his convictions about the God he is relying on. And he comes before him in humility, dependence and submission, not with a proud and arrogant heart. But it is also this element of God's holiness that confuses Habakkuk. And having what we think is a watertight theology doesn't always answer every question that we have. And like Job, Habakkuk had a particular view of God that was limited by his own finiteness. And when God did not did something outside that frame of reference, as he did last week, uh, Habakkuk acts like a, a backseat driver telling God he's going the wrong way. <laughs> like a kid sitting in the back telling Dad, you're going the wrong way. And that's what Habakkuk's doing. He's thinking that God is going the wrong way. Lord, he says in verse 12 and 13, have a, you, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. The them he is referring to, of course, is found back in chapter 1, verse 6. The Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. And last week Habakkuk had a few why questions. And there are two more in verse 13, acting as a kind of extension to last week's questions. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Habakkuk knows that God's covenant people were acting corruptly and needed to be disciplined, but why use Babylon, who are worse than God's people are? It's like getting the, the year 12 school bully who is guilty of being violent with year 7 kids in the playground to be in charge of detention. It sounds like a bit of a contradiction of God's character to, to use the Babylonians, who were the epitome of injustice and idolatry, to be used to judge people less evil than themselves. That's why it's so confusing for Habakkuk. He can't work this out. God's working in mysterious ways. Habakkuk goes on to highlight the, do, the brutal disregard the Babylonians had for the order of God's creation with his, a fishing metaphor he uses in verse 15. He says, The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and he's glad. This image of fishing nets puts human ingenuity and cooperation on display. A fishing net is in contrast to a single hook. Uh, a fishing net, uh, sorry, in, in contrast to a, a single hook, was a technological advancement for the time. But a dragnet that requires cooperation and skill for a, a number of fishermen working together is even one step above that. No wonder the Babylonians think highly of their technology to the point of worshipping it. Look at verse 16. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. 
But in Habakkuk's image, it is more than just the fishing that is on view, but rather than an image of warfare, as verse 17 shows. Uh, verse 17 says, Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? The fisherman is a metaphor for Babylon with the fish they catch the nations and the people of those nations. The hooks, the fishnet and the dragnets are the technology that is supposed to be used to sustain life. But it's in fact an image of the technology that is used to destroy life and enslave it. Babylon's worship is not of the net as such but at the ingenuity of man to create such technology to yield control. Just as it is in our day, so too for the Babylonians. Technology can be used to sustain and save life, or it can be misused to bring destruction. By asking, is he to keep emptying his net? Habakkuk is also repeating the how long question from chapter 1, but now referring to the Babylonians rather than his own people. To Habakkuk, in his confused and disoriented state, it does appear to be a mysterious way that God is working. So chapter 2, verse 1, sees him waiting patiently for God's answer. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Although Habakkuk initially accused God of not listening in his first prayer, once again we see that God is not silent at all. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied. Then the Lord replied. We can take great comfort that God has spoken. We can take great comfort that God continues to speak through his word today. Now what was initially a prophecy or oracle of burden in chapter 1, verse 1, moves across to, to using a different word here in chapter 2, verse 2. Look at what it says there. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. It uses the word revelation or vision in some translations. It's another way of saying a word or a message given by God. It might not come true in Habakkuk's lifetime, though, though it linger, wait for it. But it will happen at an appointed time in the future. So Habakkuk is being called to live by faith, not by sight which is what chapter 3 verse 4 picks up on, as it talks about two types of people. See, verse 4, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, or by his faith in some translations. This verse is describing two kinds of people. 
the proud who live by sight and the humble who live by faith. This contrast is characteristic of all of history as all people from all eras fit into these two categories. Those who live by sight who end up being betrayed by what they live by a sight never satisfied and those who live by faith and are found to be right in the end. The faithfulness in view here could be God's faithfulness pointing us back to the truthfulness of the revelation in, in, in verse 2 and 3. It could also be about the one who embraces God's truth in the, in the revelation and therefore by embracing the revelation they're embracing the giver of the revelation. At the end of the day, it could be both on view, and Yahweh's faithfulness demands a faithful response. The righteous person faithfully over time trusts in God's faithfulness to bring about justice and waits patiently for that to happen. The righteous live by faith in the truthfulness of God. And in the case of Habakkuk, he trusts that God will bring about justice on the Babylonians in God's time. While he waits for that to happen, he lives by faith in the truth that this will happen. For us, it also means that we live by faith in the truth as well. But we know that Jesus was God. As we live on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus was God who came to earth the first time. To live the perfect life that we couldn't. He died on the cross to take the judgment we deserved for worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator God. Trusting in Jesus makes us righteous before God. Trusting in ourselves, our own strength or our own ability to explain things away does not make us righteous before God. In this message of the gospel, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it says this, A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In faith we embrace what we know about God from what he has revealed. We also know that Jesus rose again from the dead to show that death had no hold on him. He will come again to judge all those who are made righteous by trusting in him to be with him in his holy presence forever. Like Habakkuk had to wait in faith for God, we too also wait in faith for Jesus to return. For Habakkuk, while he waits in faith, God goes on to confirm to him the certainty of his coming judgment. And this is done by a series of five woes of judgment on the Babylonians that come up in the second half of the passage. Now, we've covered a lot there and it's been pretty heavy going, but uh, there's more to come. But uh, let me um, briefly pause to think about metaphors. The metaphors are amazing things, aren't they? Now, sometimes we mix our metaphors up a little bit, don't we? We get a little bit confused, such as we might say, um, I will burn that bridge when we come to it. Or we might say, well, the ball's in your court. When the ball's in your court, you go for goal. 
Hold on a second. There's a bit of a mixture going on with these metaphors. Oh, well, the dog's bark will come back to bite. We get our metaphors mixed up a little bit. In, in the verses that are following, there's a sort of a writing style that is employed that's sort of mixing up metaphors, and it's called parataxis is, is the word, and it's when images are set beside one another to draw out key themes. Each woe sort of ridicules the folly, the, the folly of the Babylonians and shows how the character deficiencies of the Babylonians will ultimately come back to bite them, come back to taunt them, as, as verse 6 suggests. After they had ruined proud Judah, God would bring them to ruin. They will get their just deserts. And although each one speaks for itself, let's touch briefly on them as we go through. Woe 1 begins in verse 6 to 8 and mocks the process of exploiting the weak. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. When the wealthy plunder the nations, eventually the victims will rise up against the oppressors. The play on words here in verse 8 is, As they plunder the nations, then the peoples who are left will plunder them. There's a great reversal going on. Woe 2 starts in verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. This woe mocks the false assumption that acquisition of profits from unjust gain provides security from all harm. What may be profitable in this world by setting a nest on high, having a nest egg and thinking you are safe from harm, ultimately leads to ruin in God's economy. You cannot escape the long arm of God's justice in the face of death and judgment. Seeking financial security is not in and of itself a bad thing. But if it's founded on greed and the exploitation of others, it is unjust and immoral. The personification at the end of verse 11 leads into the woe of verse 12. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This woe mocks the false permanence of power. If we persist in thinking that our current position of power is permanent, then we are in for a rude shock. No matter what you do, how powerful you are, a corpse is a corpse. What may be established for a time in the end will come to nothing. This woe finishes with an ultimate rebuke that in the end the only glory that remains 
is God's glory. The last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, paints vivid pictures of this taking place when Jesus returns. But woe for uh, follows on in verse 15 and 17. Uh, it says this, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it on, pouring it from the wine skin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. This, mo walks the uh, this woe mocks the leading of others astray. It heaps metaphor upon metaphor using euphemism for illicit sexual contact. Whatever is done is immoral and exploitive as it leads others astray into idolatry themselves. There will only be shame and disgrace instead of glory. The reversal continues. We get to verse 18 and 20, the final woe. And it doesn't begin with an accusation statement like the other four, but with a question, which alerts us to the fact that the five woes are coming to a close. It moves from the debauchery in the previous woe to the religious idolatry of the ancient world, where religious gods were fertility gods. Immorality and idolatry go hand in hand. Let's read from verse 18 to 20. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's, there's no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The modern world turns from God to themselves, but the modern world denies the reality between ethics and God. This, mo this woe mocks the irrationality of idolatry. This is an important woe because it addresses Habakkuk's second complaint about idolatry. And it also links back to chapter 1, verse 11, which highlighted that the strength of the Babylonians was their God. But idolatry is not just a sense that a God is present in an idol, a block of wood, a building perhaps. It is more complex than that. Theologically speaking, it is anything that replaces love for the Creator with things that He has given. Worshipping and serving created things rather than the Creator. In our culture, it's a lifestyle perhaps, retirement plans, savings accounts, aspirations for our children, the, the idol of reputation where we try and give the impression that we have it all together. Maybe the endless quest for more stuff in our materialistic world. Consumer goods are considered good gifts by some and terrible gods by others. 
But we come to this final verse in, in 20, verse 20, and it ultimately contrasts the Lord with the emptiness of idolatry. Idols cannot speak, whereas God has spoken. God provides a revelation where the idol cannot. And there is an irony of the word silence here. The idol cannot speak and remains silent. But even if it could speak, then it would have nothing to say in the face of God and therefore would remain silent anyway. The language of silence is a way of calling the creation to recognize the divine verdict of judgment. The puffed up might of Babylon will experience a reversal and a downfall. And, a rever and the righteous person living by faith will experience a reversal and will be saved. The great reversal is going on. I've mentioned a few points of application along the way, but let me add two further points, a few points to the ones I've already given. Well, firstly, this passage is a challenge to the excessively proud to stop running from God and trying to make it on your own. There's no such thing as a self-made man, as God is the maker of all things, included what is considered success. God raises up, and God brings down. It is a call, a challenge to those of you that are not in the, who think uh, you belong in the driver's seat. We're not the driver of the car here. We need to turn to God and acknowledge that our need to be forgiven for worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator. God himself. We need to choose to live by faith and not by sight. Secondly, to those of us who have chosen to live by faith and not by sight. When we are agitated and anxious about evil in this world and feel that God is not in control, let's not be surprised by evil. Be upset and angered and frustrated, yes, but not surprised. We can take comfort that God is bringing about his purposes despite what appears to be otherwise. And when we are mocked and scoffed at for being people who live by faith and not by sight, when we feel like the powerful among us who live in defiance of God seem to be in control, let's remember that evil will not have the last word. A great reversal will take place. Be patient in God's timing. Though it linger, the promise of Jesus' return will not prove false. And we will be vindicated on the last day for the choices that we made as people of faith. A great reversal will take place. Finally, as we live in a world that tempts us to worship created things rather than the Creator, and as we acknowledge in the words of William Cooper that, 
that God does not move that, that God does move in a mysterious way. Let's also be encouraged that in that mystery and mysterious way that God works, that William Cowper himself, in all his depression and anxiety about life, he once said these words that of all the gifts that God gives to us, God himself is the greatest. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Lord, our God, our Holy One, who has made a way for us to be righteous in your sight through faith in Jesus Christ. Although it doesn't feel like it uh, now, we know that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. Help us not to be tempted to live by sight and think that the evil we see around us will have the last word. But help us to wait patiently as people who live by faith, knowing that the choice we make to live according to your word will be shown to be the right choice in the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.